Amen. You guys can have a seat. And whether it's your first time with us today or uh, you've been coming here for several years, we we continually pray that New City Church would be known to be a place of uh, just rest, that your hearts and souls would find rest and restoration and that you'd be revived week after week uh, just through the prayers of one another and singing to the Lord and the preaching of God's Word. You know, today uh, we begin to come to a close to the book of Joshua. We're, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 22, and next week we're going to be uh, ending it in Joshua 23 and 24, seeing Joshua's last and parting words. But before we jump into Joshua, I want to take a few minutes and talk about what's coming up. After, you know, after Thanksgiving, uh, we're going to begin a mini-series that will be titled uh, The Scandalous Cradle That Will Take Us to Christmas. And yes, I'm always excited to start new series, but with our church, this one... I think will just be really fun and a little bit of a unique perspective of the entire Old Testament leading up to the birth of Jesus. You know, over the past three years uh, leading up to Christmas, we've tried to step back and see the whole story of the Bible and using the genealogy of Matthew to help us. And as we've done this, we've highlighted much of what we saw last week with God's heart for kingdom expansion. And we're going to continue to do that this year as we look at God's heart for global missions and church planting. You know, but this year we are going to have a bit of a unique perspective, and we're going to highlight the women that we see in the gene- genealogy to Jesus. And as we do that, yeah, praise the Lord. And I, there you go. And as we do that, I think we'll, we'll find out that pretty quickly uh, that the line that Jesus came from wasn't exactly the picture-perfect family. Uh, and let's be abundantly clear, it's not just the women Uh, but both the men and the women in the genealogy. But in all of it, we'll see that the kingdom of of the kingdom came from a a pretty unexpected family tree. And I think we'll find this series very hopeful because we'll see that Jesus didn't come into a world that was full of peace and harmony. Like he didn't come into a picture-perfect world. No, Jesus came into a world that was full of chaos and scandal, seeing that he came to bring hope into the chaos. And so we're going to see that uh, this is not the typical Hallmark Christmas story that we think of around Christmas. No, the Christmas story in the Bible is full of scandal, but it's hope in the scandal. As we look out into our city and world, that is ex- this is exactly what God has called each of us to step into. God has called us to bring a message of hope into a chaotic and scandalous world. And so this is why we pray, and this is why we give and go into our city and into our world, like we've talked about this, this week, last week, and we've prayed this week. And this is also why we do our year-end above and beyond offering that we're, called, uh, we're calling this year Anchored for the Mission, because we're praying that God would further anchor us here in Tampa so that we can have a lasting impact for years to come. You know, we're gonna have, we'll have more details on this in the weeks ahead, but the whole purpose is for our church to be able to give very generously to new churches and to global missions and to kingdom advancing work. You see, every, we say every week that generosity fuels the mission, and, and, in, and during this series, uh, you know, we're going to see that during this series because we know that bringing the hope of Christmas to the world, it has a cost. It has a price tag. You know, we know that Jesus sacrificed his life for us, and in return, Jesus calls us to sacrifice for him. Like, this is part of the Christian life. And and there's no denying this. Giving generously, it's just one of the marks of Christian maturity in the life of a Christian, like marks of maturity in the life of a Christian. And y'all, please hear me. Okay, this is not me saying this because I want you to give. But rather, I'm saying this because just the Bible is just really clear on this. You know, if it were up to me, I would never talk about money just because people don't like it, Okay. But I know that we would not be pastoring our church well and faithful to the scriptures if we just never addressed it because it comes up so frequently. 
And I also don't want to hide the fact that the vision for our church is way bigger than the resources that we currently have available. And quite honestly, it will probably always be that way because our vision is to get the gospel all over Tampa Bay and all around the world, to plant churches all over the United States. In New City, that's a big vision. That's going to cost a lot of money. It just will. But as as I say that, I want to also be abundantly clear. Like generosity, it's a heart and discipleship thing. This is a mission of God thing. This is absolutely not a church budget thing. And so year after year, we talk about Christmas and global missions and church planting and the generosity of God because they all, they all go hand in hand. They can't be separated. You know, we today, we can send missionaries and we can plant churches and we can labor in our city bringing hope because God's people are generous. Again, God gave generously to us and so we give generously back to him. Like this is just part of Christmas. And so that's where we're going in the weeks ahead, looking at the scandalous cradle in the hope of Christmas. And also, one more thing before we jump into Joshua, you know, this uh, New City, this year, we'll have our very first New City Christmas Eve service. Uh, Yeah, praise the Lord, on on Saturday, December 24th. I'm really excited about this. This is going to be one of those really special moments for us, just showing us another step to being further anchored here in the Tampa Bay area for the mission of God. And I hope you'll see this as an excellent way uh, to invite all your friends and families and coworkers just to hear about the hope of Jesus. And so be thinking and praying about who you could invite And so that's what's ahead, okay? But for today, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 22. And we do have a bit of a change of pace from the past two weeks with our kind of our battle list and our register of deeds text that we looked at last week. You know, we're going to be back into a more of a narrative, like a story. And I don't think it's a super well-known story. It doesn't often make like the the children's Bible, like it doesn't make the list oftentimes, maybe because it's not so awe-inspiring. You know, as many of the others, like nothing spectacular happens, nothing miraculous happens. It's honestly just a story about a bit of a misunderstanding. But in many ways, I'm really thankful for this chapter, chapter 22, because it shows us something really special about the beauty and the importance of a community of people in our life that are surrendered to the Lord. You know, authentic relationships is part of our three, one of our three core values. And today we see a great picture of relational authenticity. Like just seeing people care for each other and having hard conversations while also just showing us some of the challenges of relationships and community. Like it's, it's not always so clean cut and perfect. Like people are messy. Relationships are messy. And yet we still really need them because God created us for relationships. Like God created us for real, genuine, heartfelt, and honest relationships that will have hard conversations with us and celebrate with us and love us regardless of the situation. You know, I don't find it a coincidence that as soon as we see God bless his people, giving them all their inheritance like we saw last week, that right after we see a bit of a scuffle and some tension, seeing the danger of disunity. It's kind of like the kids just kind of open up their uh, presents on Christmas morning and now they're kind of getting at each other, you know? And they're getting upset trying to figure out, like, how do we play this new game together? And they're getting upset with each other, and they're trying to learn how to, how to work it out. And so in this, today we're going to see as our main idea that God designed us to be in, genuine, to be in a genuine, unified community. Like, this is a really simple, big idea today. But it's also massively important. Because as soon as God's people inherited their new land, the threat was not so much outside of their community, but it was rather inside of their community. The enemy moved from trying to stop the kingdom, stop, trying to stop kingdom advancement 
from outside threats and battles to then trying to make God's people crumble from the inside, disunifying them. And church, this should not surprise us because this is what our enemy does. If he can't uh, stop kingdom advancement, his next step will be to disunify God's people. Again, this should not surprise us because one of the greatest relational pictures of the, of the gospel in marriage is also where some of the greatest struggles for many often happen. Like we see this in families, in friendships, in the church, in organizations, in business. The best way, I mean, the best way to slow down a group of people is to just pit them against one another. And that's what we see here in Joshua 22. And as we go, we'll, we'll have three simple, really simple principles for a life lived in a unified community. And quite honestly, nothing today is like earth-shattering or really complex. They're all really simple ideas. But this is one of those sermons where teaching it and understanding it, it's pretty easy. But actually living it out and doing it, like that's a totally different story. Again, it's easy to teach, but it's hard to live. So that said, as we've seen in the book of Joshua, Israel, you know, God's people, they just inherited all this new land, and now they're needing to learn how to live together as an expanded community in their new land. So let's go ahead and dive into our story. We're we're not going to read every verse today. I'm going to tell some and read some. We're going to kind of give those three principles as we go, and we're going to kind of weave weave in and out of our story. So again, last week we saw those nine chapters of detailed land allotment with Israel receiving their promised land. And we pick up today in chapter 22, verse 1. We're going to read all the way to verse 6. So let's go ahead and see what it says. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses the servant of the Lord commanded commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore turn and go to your tents in the land where your possessions lie, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. And as we read that, I think we could say it's like, so far, so good. I mean, there's two tribes, and a half, half of one of the tribes were blessed, and they were honored by Joshua, acknowledging they were given rest. And then they were told to go back to the other side of the Jordan River to get their land on the east side of the Jordan. And if you're like me, you might think it's kind of funny that Joshua calls one tribe the half-tribe. Like, I've always kind of wondered, wondered about this, but it simply just means what it says. Like half of their tribe received land on the east side and half was on the west side. And so that's what it is. That's the half-tribe of Manasseh. And Joshua's like, thank you for your service. You can go back and get your land. Thank you for walking in obedience and serving the Lord. And then I just kind of imagine them like hugging and parting ways. Like one of those really special moments. In the middle of that special moment, I want to point out verse 5 again because this is important. Look what it says. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. To love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. And so in the middle of this really special moment, as these two and a half tribes are being blessed and honored by the Lord or Joshua, God God reminds them to obey him and to love him and to cling to him and to serve him with all of their heart and soul, like give give everything they've got. As we look at this, thinking about principles for a genuine unified community, I think we can see uh, our very first principle here. Number one, a genuine unified community puts God at the center. Again, nothing earth shattering here. 
Like we hear this idea often to keep God at the center. But again, I think it's easy to say, but much harder to do. And this is true for every relationship we have, marriage, friends, roommates, classmates, family, like the most honest, loving, and genuine relationships keep Jesus at the center. Like we keep our eyes on Jesus. We're unified under Jesus. And and again, I know this may seem like an obvious thing to us, and we know it, but yet it's still easy to keep Jesus out of the center of our relationships. Like it's a subtle creep. I know for uh, families, just as one example, our to-do list and sports and schools, and birthday parties, and activities, and all the things, and all the play dates. Like they, all these things can easily take over. And by no means am I saying we, we don't do these things. No, like they're good to do. I'm just saying God did not design these things to be at the center of our life and our relationships. Our marriages should not revolve around our kids, or our jobs, or our financial situations. Like an ebb and flow between these things. No, God designed our relationships to be unified by Jesus at the center. But again, this is much easier said than done. And you know uh, what I also know? I also know it's really easy to put ourselves at the center of a relationship and to keep everything focused on me and my needs and my wants and my desires. And we can easily creep into seeing another person or a community of people to be the ones responsible to meet those desires. Like, it's really easy to slowly creep into expecting our spouse or roommates or close friends or kids to meet the needs and desires that we're focused on. And then when they don't meet our needs and desires, like, we get upset with them. And again, I'm absolutely not saying we don't have relational needs because we do. We were designed for relationships. But I am saying that it is just generally true that most relational conflict can be traced back to competing desires. A husband wants one thing and a wife wants another. One roommate wants one thing and the, and the other wants something totally different. And, and conflict and disunity then happens. And all of a sudden, in that moment, those desires become the center of the relationship. Like it's the focal point, causing the relationship to then get out of balance. We're seeking to find unity based off of the desires that I want, not what the Lord wants. And again, God did not design us to live this way. Like our wants and desires and our ambitions, they're not central to our community. No, God and his ways are at the center. Again, this happens all the time. We want something or or desire something. Oftentimes, uh, it's something pretty insignificant sometimes. And in the heat of the moment, when emotions are high and self-control is low, and and that thing that seems so important, like just sitting on the couch for another two minutes, like we all of a sudden were willing to sacrifice the unity of our relationship to argue about those two minutes or whatever the thing is. But if both parties in the heat of the moment were able to just stop the downward cycle of disunity and swallow our pride and just ask, like, what does Jesus want for us in this situation right now? And then actually submit to that, because that's the hard part. I think we'd be surprised of how our hearts can go from disunified by our desires to being unified under Jesus. Because again, our unity as a community is in Jesus Christ and not our desires or our opinions. It's Jesus. You know what I know all too well is that we can know this and believe this and be convinced of this and yet still often miss it. Like day by day, week by week, this subtle shift happens. But do you know what's so encouraging about this? 
is that we can try so hard to keep God at the center of our life and continue to fall short again and again. But the beauty of the gospel tells us that Jesus knows we will fall short, but yet he still pursues us anyways. He says to us, to me, he says, Eric, I love you. Your mind, get back up and keep going. Like, let's reorient your life again today. And when our life gets out of order yet again, Jesus just gently nudges us and says, hey, just look up at me. Like, I'm here. I love you. I've never left you. Let's keep doing this life together. And he doesn't shun us or he doesn't shame us. No, he he says to us, just come and sit at my table of honor. Like, this is the gospel for our life. We regularly and daily get off track, but because of the cross and his shed blood, Jesus simply says, just come and sit at my table. Just come and follow me. I love you. You're mine. You see, this is the beauty of the gospel. And when Jesus is at the center of our community, he transforms the community to reflect and display his love. This love. And as we continue to work through this story, kind of diving back into it, seeing Joshua encourage his people, I don't, again, I don't want us to miss the beauty of this moment. Because Joshua just charged his people to love the Lord and to cling to him and to serve him with all their heart and soul. He blessed them, and then uh, they go each to their land. And at this point in the the story, if like the music were playing in the background, it would be like happy music with everyone smiling and laughing and enjoying life because life is good. I mean, they just received land and blessings and encouragement and wealth. And then as we expect, the narrative, then it continues. And it doesn't stay that way. Now, just imagine that the music kind of begins to shift from the major keys to the minor keys to draw our attention to the tension in the story. Because look what it says. Read down to verse 10. And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. I mean, the author here makes the tension of this story thick. I mean, here are two and a half tribes that just fought for the Lord. They go back to their land with all their new wealth, and they then build a really big altar. Like it says, an imposingly big altar, it says. And as the readers in the point of the story were left wondering, like, what does this altar represent? Like, what, what, like what, what are they building this altar for? Like, what God are they building this altar for? I mean, don't they know better than this? And look what it says next. And the people of Israel heard of it, said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan. And the region about the Jordan on this side of the land belongs to the people of Israel. When the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. So they build this huge altar. Word gets back to Israel. I guess someone tweeted about it or something. I don't know. And the rest of Israel is ready to go to war against them. Almost like, no, you will not worship any other gods on this land. And they are just ready to go and fight to bring them down. Like a full-on civil war is about to break out. Like Israel west of the Jordan River versus Israel east of the Jordan River. And all because of this really big imposing altar that these two and a half tribes built. Like I just kind of imagine them with war paint on their faces with swords and shields ready to fight. And then if we kept reading, we see that they had a few level-headed people, and they sent uh, Phineas, the priest, 
and the 10 chiefs, one from each tribe, to go and talk to these guys. Like they had a little sit-down chit-chat, a little face-to-face talk. And we must ask, well, what do they say? What was their conversation about? Well, look what it says in verse 16. Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? They're basically like, what in the world are you doing? Like, why are you walking away from the Lord? Why did you build this altar? Like, why are you rebelling against God? They're concerned for these people that are part of their community and they're confronting them. Look what it says next in verse 17 and 18. Have we not had enough of the sin of Peor from which even yet uh, we have not cleansed ourselves or, from, uh, which, or for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord and that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. I, I, I mean, in this moment, I just, being, I just imagine them being a little heated like, what are you doing this making this altar? Like, don't you remember what happened back in Numbers chapter 25 with the people of Peor that worshiped another god? I mean, the chiefs, if you go back and read it, I mean, it's like an intense story. The chiefs were hung. Like, they were, like, what are you thinking? And, and the priest, uh, Phineas, he was, uh, he was there. He remembered it. He saw all of it. And it was like burnt into his brain what happened. And so what do they do? They went to the people in lo- and they just, that they loved, and they addressed the situation. And what I want us to see from this is number two, a genuine unified community steps into conflict. We step into conflict and disunity. We do not run from it. I know there are several different types of people in the room, like two extremes. On one extreme, you really struggle with conflict. Like it it makes you cringe. It's terrifying. The The thought of stepping into conflict is just like, it sounds like death to you. Like these are the people that when you go to Chick fil A, uh, you get shorted $5 and change, and then by accident, they notice it, and it's like, okay, is this $5? Like, is it actually worth me saying something to the cashier? I don't know. And you start to have a panic, and you're like, nope, I'm not going to do it. I can't do it. And then you just kind of walk away because you don't want to embarrass the cashier. But on the other extreme, on the other side, there are people that are in just like invigorated by the conflict. They just love a good debate. Debating is like their love language, and these are the people they see that $5, they get shorted, and they're just invigorated, and they call the manager, and they're like, hey, this is an opportunity to get a free meal, and just to be a complete jerk about it. Like, there's two extremes of conflict, like total conflict averse on one side, and just plain mean and rude on the other side. But what we must see is that in the scriptures, God always calls us to restore conflict and seek grace-filled reconciliation even when it's hard to hear and when it's hard to do. And listen to me, the purpose of embracing conflict is not to put someone in their place. It's not to drive a further wedge or to prove a point or to make sure someone knows that we're right. No, the reason we embrace and enter into conflict is for the purpose of restoration. It's to bring people back together to bring communities together, to unify this unity. And if we ignore it or don't enter into it, we're missing out on what God has called us to do. He's called us to be ministers of, reconcil- of reconciliation, agents of restoration. And if we ignore conflict to keep the peace, that's not unity. That's just a mirage of unity. And what we see here in this story is that these 10 chiefs and Phineas the priest They enter into the conflict for the good of their community. And they do this because they love these people. 
And they want to obey the Lord. They want a unified community. And what we'll see is that they don't shun them or shame them, shame them or leave them out on the side of the road, just kind of left out to dry. No, they offered a solution. They came in with a path for restoration. Look what the solution, uh, look what it is. Look what it says in verse 19 and 20. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan the son of Zerah break faith in the matter of the devoted things and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel? And he did not perish alone for his iniquity. And so what do they do? They said, if this land is unclean, go to where the tabernacle is and go see about a new land. Like there's a sense of urging for restoration, and they remind them of, of the sin of Achan that we saw back in, uh, earlier in Joshua, who hid treasures in his entire family. Like They were severely punished, uh, and they were warning them here. And the priest, Phineas, and these ten chiefs, like they're urging them to seek restoration and to make their wrong right. Again, they're stepping into conflict, and they're seeking to reconcile their community, and they're seeking the best interest of their people. And what I want us to see about this is that, church, we need these people in our life. We need people that will see us and step up to bat with our best interests in mind. We need people that when we get off the tracks, they will do whatever they can to get us back on the tracks. Like We need people that know all of our stuff. No, we don't need everybody to know everything, but we do need a few people to know some things. Or most uh, that know everything. We need a few people that know all things. And this is why our groups are so important. This is where the, this primarily happens in our church here at New City. And we need to ask, like, who are these people in our life that will hold us accountable? Like, who are the people that are going to ask us the hard questions and they're going to dig into our life in a loving way to then point us to Jesus? Because this is what genuine biblical community looks like. This is what is needed to maintain unity. In New City, this is what we strive for. We want to look out for one another. And no, it's not mean or rude, but it does provide space for confrontation in a loving and in a gentle way. And let me be clear, no constant correction and constant confrontation and constant calling out of sin is not what we're talking about. Yes, we're called to confront and hold accountable, but as Jesus said, before we call out the speck in another person's eye, we must first look at the log in our own eye. When we call out someone else's sin without grieving and being painfully aware of the sin in our own life and grieving both of our sins together, when we fail to do this, we're heaping on like graceless condemnation. And this is absolutely not from the Lord. No, the gospel calls us to something entirely different. Yes, we must be willing to lovingly address sin and hold one another accountable when we do it, we're desperately aware of our own need of grace in our own life. It's like, hey man, I know this is going to be hard to hear. And believe me, I've got a whole laundry list of things that I'm working on myself, but I see this thing in your life that I'm not sure that you're aware of, or maybe you are aware of it, but can we work together and make a plan to work on this? And maybe you can help me on a few things of my, in my own life and we can, like while we're at it, you know what, being able to say that to a brother or sister in Christ, it takes time and it takes intentional relational investment. And this is like an earned conversation in a person's life. This is not an entitled one. 
You know what? Lovingly approaching someone, aware of our own sin and grieving it all together, it's a totally different approach than saying, hey, you're in sin. Like, can you just straighten up and get your act together? Like, uh, that's just not right. But you know what? I also know, I'll say for me, I hope someone in my life would have the guts to say this to me if I've already been addressed many times and nothing has changed. Because I also know that when, I, when we sweep things under the rug and ignore things under the mirage of grace to maintain a false sense of peace, it's also not from the Lord. Now, oftentimes, the most loving thing we can do is lovingly confront and step into conflict and then gently together wrestle through it. Again, we're called to be ministers of reconciliation. That's what Paul calls us to in 2 Corinthians. And we step into disunity. We do not run from it. When all parties are seasoned with grace, with soft hearts, and with God at the center, New City, when reconciliation and redemption and restoration happens in relationships and in a community, God gets glorified. You know what's interesting about this? When we address conflict and when we deal with it and then we work through with it, our relationships actually get stronger. The roots of our relationships grow deeper and deeper by every trial we overcome and every trial we work through. I know our elders here at New City, we've been working through a book together called Lead by Paul David Tripp, and it's been just so good for us. In the book, uh, he discussed the strength of an oak tree, how it just kind of happens over time. It gets stronger and stronger through every drought and storm and harsh winter that it makes it through. And because it goes through these high strains, the roots and the branches of the oak tree, they get stronger and stronger. And I found this fitting because this is what happens with us in our relationships, As we make it through trial and conflict by embracing it and not ignoring it, our relationships, they grow stronger. And so far, Phineas and his ten chiefs have confronted these two and a half tribes. And again, they're trying to work through it. And what happens is so intriguing to me. Maybe a little funny. (laughs) You know what these two and a half tribes said back to them? After they were confronted, look what it says in verse 22 and 23. The mighty one, God the Lord. The mighty one, God the Lord, he knows and let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. And in essence, they essentially say, no, we didn't do this in rebellion or as a breach of faith. We, we still worship the Lord. Like God is the Lord. And if we kept reading over the next several chapters, all the way to the end of the chapter, we'd see them say back to them, they didn't do this to rebel against the Lord. No, they did this to remember the Lord. They did this as an act of worship. And as the story ends, they, they all agree, seeing it as a good thing, and we see them unified under the Lord. They weren't rebelling. They were worshiping and remembering. I mean, like, what a turn of events. <laughs> I mean, I just think about this whole story. These ten chiefs and the people of Israel, they were ready to go to war against these people for this imposing altar that they built. And they went in and they embraced the conflict. They didn't go directly to war. No, they approached them. They talked about it to then find out, oh, no, they're not rebelling against the Lord. Oh, you're remembering the Lord. It's like, oh, whoops. (laughs) My bad. (laughs) Like, New City, this was a total misunderstanding. And I find this so fascinating that there is an entire chapter in the book of Joshua about a misunderstanding with God's people that about sent them into a civil war. But I'm 
actually like really encouraged by this because it reminds us of our humanness. Like we're human. This is what it looks like to be human. God's people just got the best gift of their life immediately followed by a fumble of understanding. And it's like, oh, whoops, (laughs) can I take those words back? And I'm so encouraged by this because of the sheer normalcy of it. It's just a simple reminder to us that misunderstandings like this will happen. It comes with uh, relationships. It's part of a community. Someone will say something or, or do something. There's a misunderstanding. And then, like we see in our story, the imagination, it just runs wild. And if we're not careful, disunity in the church or in relationships or with others can happen all too quickly just by a simple misunderstanding. Just showing us our last point for today. Number three, a genuine, unified community is filled with grace. You know what we didn't see in this passage? We didn't see these two and a half tribes get angry or defensive for the other tribes confronting them. They didn't say, like, how dare you? How could you accuse us of such a thing? No, they they simply just exalted God, saying the mighty one, the Lord, saying God knew their intentions, God knew their hearts. And New City, this is so important and so helpful to maintain unity in a community and in relationships. This being able to look past what we perceive to be something that's not good and seek to assume the best and seeking to understand intentions. Being able to assume the best in people. Like when it, when it sure does seem like what, something, what someone is doing seems to be just flat wrong, it's just, that's just really helpful. And yes, we need to seek clarification and not live in ambiguity and live in assumptions. But this idea that we see in chapter 22 of seeking to assume the best and regularly extending grace to people, it's just so helpful in our relationships. Because we all know what happens, just like we said earlier. It's so easy to do what these ten chiefs and Phineas did, taking a small piece of information, and then we just fill in all the details with our imagination. Like They knew they built a massive altar, which then got translated to, they're rebelling against God, and we need to go to war. And just being real here, I mean, how easy is it for us to take a small piece of information, and then all of a sudden, in our brain, the next civil war is playing out? The enemy here was seeking to pit the family of God against one another simply by a misunderstanding and then was blown up into something tragic. And yes, we can commend these 10 tribes for engaging in conflict and stepping into it because if they didn't engage, to, engage it and talk to them, they would have gone to war against their own people who were wholeheartedly worshiping the Lord. And something that's just been really helpful for me and my wife, when we, when we start to go down these rabbit trails of stories that kind of play out in our heads based on one small piece of information, we simply just kind of talk it out and then seek, to clar- seek out clarifying information. You know, we say this often here, the enemy loves to whisper lies into our heads, loves to create scenarios and twisting stories and specifically to pit God's people against one another. We must see this and recognize this and seek to draw closer to one another in conflict and seek to clarify and not, or run, not run away in conflict. From the very beginning of Joshua, we've seen God call his people to be strong and courageous. And you know what takes courage? Embracing conflict and not running away from it. It takes courage to enter into the mess and not retreat from it. 
You know what? It also takes courage to be loving and gracious and kind and patient and soft-hearted and to swallow our pride in conflict. You know, New City, as we end our time today, I can't help but think of the grace that Jesus daily extends to us. Because he actually really knows, he really truly knows the full intentions of our heart. He knows the good, the bad, the ugly. He knows all the details, and he doesn't even have to fill in the gaps. He sees both our rebellion, and he also sees the good intentions of our heart. He sees it all. But yet, regardless of the day, good intentions or bad, you know what he does to those who call Jesus Lord? He still draws near to us anyways. He looks at us as he looks at his perfect son, Jesus. And church, like, this is grace. You know, in this story today, these two and a half tribes, they actually had good intentions, but I think we all know in many cases, that's not always the case. And I just, I just want us to think today, like, let's ask ourselves, what could God do with the church community and in our marriages and in our friendships and relationships, what could God do with people that are willing to step into conflict, seasoned with grace? and seeking restoration week after week and month after month. Like what picture can we show our world when a group of imperfect and messy people with messy lives can extend grace to one another and seek unity under Jesus Christ? And so let's just ask, who is it that today God is calling you to extend grace to and to enter into conflict with the goal of restoration Not to be vindictive or rude or mean or to put someone in their place, but simply just extending the same grace and kindness that Jesus gives to us. Maybe it's your spouse or your kids. Maybe it's a friend or a coworker. But just who is it that God may have you show the same forgiveness he's shown to us at the cross? New City, this is the type of genuine community that God wants to build. Not a perfect one, but a grace-filled one. And you know where it begins? It begins simply by just looking to Jesus. It begins by worshiping the Lord, being in awe of the forgiveness of grace that he extends to us. Like we don't start by driving into the conflict. No, we start by just sitting and worshiping at the foot of the cross and seeing the forgiveness and grace given to us by the shed blood of Jesus. That's where it starts. And then as a response... We can enter into conflict seasoned with grace to find unity under Jesus. And church, this is genuine community that God created us for. It's filled with grace. And my hope and prayer is that each and every single one of us will be able to find that with one another, with us here at New City, because we pray that God would just week after week and month after month continually restore us as a people that are chasing hard after the Lord together. Let's pray. God, you're so good to us. God, you, you day after day show us grace and mercy and kindness. You draw near to us. You know the full intentions of our heart, the good, the bad, the ugly. You see it all. But yet, because of Jesus, you draw near to us and you see us as your beloved children. And we can come and worship and just sit at your feet and be restored day after day after day. God, we pray that people today would find rest and restoration in Jesus and at the foot of the cross. And then as a a simple response, be able to show it to those around us. God, we need your help. We love you and we ask this all in Jesus' name.